Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Private detectives with a dark past and a chip on their shoulder. A mysterious woman with a hidden agenda and bodies piling up around them. You know what we're talking about. Noir. Although it is films that are generally called noir, with their book counterparts being labelled hard-boiled crime, we are going to use the terms interchangeably. Mostly because I just like the term noir. I am a huge fan of noir fiction, from Raymond Chandler to Billy Wilder. But you might be wondering, what is a self-proclaimed feminist doing enjoying a genre that is at best sexist and at worst downright misogynistic? Well, the genre in its original incarnation did spend a lot of energy on post-war masculinity and widespread fears of women entering male spaces. But it also let women be a little bit bad. And who doesn't love that? As the years passed, we moved into neo-noir territory with authors and filmmakers reinterpreting the genre and its tropes. This episode's guest, C.L. Polk, is one such creator, whose novel, Even Though I Knew the End, engages with noir tropes from an intersectional feminist lens. C.L., would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, I'm C.L. Polk. Uh, I'm a fantasy novelist. Uh, I wrote The Kingston Cycle, which lost to Hugo for Best Series two weeks ago and won a Subjective Chaos Kind of Award yesterday, um, and The Midnight Bargain, which spent a few weeks on the bestseller list in Canada here a couple of years ago. Awesome. <laughs> hey, look, look, I, I lost a British Fantasy Award uh, two nights ago, so... Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was to She Who Became the Sun, though, which is an epic book. So, oh. hands up, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not too sad. <laughs> I read She Who Became the Sun. Actually, I listened to it on audio and did chores. I did so many chores because I didn't want to stop listening. And then when it was over, I stopped. I had a dirty dish rag in my hands, and I just kind of stopped in the kitchen for a couple of seconds, and then I burst into tears. Wow. It is it is a phenomenal work. So um, and it was such a great shortlist as well. I mean, like I really wouldn't have wanted to be the jury. Wow, it's it's so hard to make a pick on shortlists these days. It's so hard, like because there isn't there isn't an obvious winner and there's never an obvious loser. It's just always a terrible choice. It's just, why do I have to only pick one? These are all so good. Can't I just keep them all? <laughs> It's a feast. Anyway, we're here to talk about you and your book and noir. So your new book, Even Though I Knew the End, it it does riff on some of these film noir, hard-boiled crime tropes. I mean, what made you want to examine these themes or reinterpret them? Honestly, it was the voice. That's, That's it. I, like, kind of wanted that whole tropey mood of like the private eye solving a crime it's not quite what they thought it was going to be when they got into the beginning of this mess and they certainly did not expect what happened by the time they get to the end but it was just because 
Raymond Chandler makes me sad because he, you know, he wrote so well and he would swing for the fences. He was a very daring pro stylist. Sometimes it would come off terrible, but he always, you know, he always gave it a really good go. But could you please write a woman who is not a ball of irrationality just, you know, once? No? Okay. I love that you say the voice because that's, yeah, absolutely one of my favorite things about noir. And just like the lines that they come up with, like there's some of them are so like almost cheesy in a way because they're just so clunky and yet somehow they are so amazing. I Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like I'm a big fan of Dragon Age Inquisition and one of the side quests for one of your companion characters is a fan of terrible cheesy books that are actually written by one of the other characters. And one of the things that she says is it's terrible and magnificent. And is that, that is just basically how I feel about noir. It's like, sometimes it's just so, oh my God, did you really say that? And then sometimes you're just like, wow, wow. Like what a world I live in that I get to read this book. Everyone hands together for Varric and Cassandra. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I loved that quest. It was pretty much one of my favourites. <laughs> Sorry, derailed that into a Dragon Age. <laughs> That's okay. We'll allow it. So, I mean, obviously you've mentioned like women in these stories are irrational often. Are there any other sort of tropes that appear in these sorts of stories that you think have just had their day and you just wish that they would stop uh, reappearing? Well, I mean, it isn't necessarily that I won't use a trope that I dislike because that would deny me the opportunity to demonstrate why it's bad. But like, I mean, let's let's talk about the first very obvious one. Noir and hard-boiled detective fiction is generally pretty happy to characterize gay people as, well, depraved. Um, and deserving of dehumanization and terrible fates. And, and of course, I don't like that one. And obviously, the thing about the femme fatale, about this beautiful woman who leads this tough-as-nails detective into grave misfortune and like finding out that the world is just as bad as he really thought it was, actually, is maybe a little bit unfair. But the image is just so powerful that... You know, I do, I do want to use it. It's just, I think the problem is, is with the femme fatale is that they're not complex at all. It's just like, you see them walk in, you know their trouble, and here they are to deliver it. Um, there's never any reasons that are good. Um, there's never any, like, depth of character. <laughs> and this one is really minor. But you know how you don't start a story with the weather is very common writer knowledge? Hardboiled loves to start stories with the weather, and I kind of had fun doing that. Yes. <laughs> this is where, like, the rain and the, oh, just, yes. I, I know it is one of those things I tell you not to do, but sometimes you got to break rules. Just Yeah, look, sometimes pathetic fallacy is the only way to go. Okay, so you know we you've already touched on you know the femme fatale as as a, a major stereotype, and we've also got you know the girl next door trope. But how did you approach both using and redefining these tropes with a more modern feminist lens? 
Um, well, when it comes to the femme fatale, um, uh, obviously, um, I did work with that because the character Marlo, who is, um, who is Helen's employer, definitely fits the femme fatale lens. Like she, she just does. And the thing is, is that she is literally a magic user. She's more than that, but she is literally a magic user. So just being able to play that absolutely literally because I'm writing fantasy was was pretty fun, actually. But the thing about Marlo is that she doesn't really have that whole like, well, you know, her her looks and her body, they led me astray because Helen is perfectly comfortable with women and their sexuality. So she's not, you know, likely to have fall for it, be a sucker for it, be incapable of seeing anything else about Marlo other than that. You mentioned earlier that some of the problems with the femme fatale was sort of the the lack of the fleshing out of a character. They're not three-dimensional in any way, shape or form. Yeah, you're never invited to understand the femme fatale ever. But do you think you can still have a femme fatale and have them sort of stripped away from that complete unknowability yes basically what i think people are reaching for when they have that femme fatale character is that the femme fatale character character is of burden with this purpose and it's really what she cares about and anything else is kind of a distraction she wants what she wants and she's going to go get it and in a different world that's just being like assertive and driven yeah. And then using magic as the way to get things rather than using or at least making people uncomfortable with using sexuality, um, cleavage, <laughs> legs in uh, stockings. <laughs> oh, I mean, if if you think I didn't indulge myself in a few like sexy metaphors about Marlo's appearance, I am sorry to disappoint you, but she is dish. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing like you know some of the things are fun about it it's about at least for me i think showing that there can be more and if you have a few moments of absolutely using your sexuality because that's something you can and plenty of people do do but there's more to them than just that hmm. i'm not as huge fan of uh, noir as Megan is but I do like a good femme fatale and I, I kind of like the girl next door as well and when I see them they're very standard comfortable tropes that you kind of go yeah I know it's coming I can relax and expect this that and the other but what about mixing the two what I have about having the girl next door who has that evil powerful streak to her but looks innocent or the femme fatale who you know go around and and cooks like dinner for the homeless people and and you know throwing some new ideas in there is have you come across that in the reading that you've done around this or is you know is there anyone in your book that you'd like to say well actually I put a little bit of both in them specifically around like the noir that I read or like actually watched no but I do want to talk about a uh, detective, a detective series that is a little bit more modern. A writer named Sarah Peretsky has a character, uh, V.I. Warshawski, who also is a detective in Chicago, but a little bit later in the time. And she's very definitely 
very definitely a second wave feminist detective. And you're never unaware that she's doing the hard-boiled detective's job in what is a man's world, but she's doing her very, very best to kick that down. And one of the things that I really loved about reading Sarah Paretsky when I was younger was that her characters were interesting because they weren't, it wasn't just that, you know, you could hide a sign on them with like the name of their role and then know everything about them. The other thing that I want to talk about again is with that more modern um, kind of dark tinged detective fiction. I mean, writers from, from Scandinavia are very, very good with this. And I'm trying to, I'm stalling because I can't remember her name. I want to say Laura Lippmann, but I'm not sure that's true. Writes about a policewoman in Sweden and about her station and the characters within them. And they are all, they all get their chance to basically be examined. You get to see who they are. Her her boss is a jerk, and then he meets this wonderful woman, and he realizes that he has to be a better person to deserve her, and and things like this. And all the while, they're investigating these horrible, harrowing, heartbreaking murders. One of my favorite sort of modern ones that does things more interesting and has actually, you know, the female version of the PI at least is Veronica Mars not a book but a fantastic yes. series yes I like Jessica Jones I did I watched the mm-hmm. very first one and I kind of loved what they were doing with that with Jessica Jones basically trying to be like the stoic female detective kind of thing nobody's going to get to me and other people are around her knocking on the glass and saying hello you need people hello one of the things I loved about Veronica Mars especially was that, you know, it's as you say, you didn't necessarily have the the obvious archetypes right there. You had people who you thought were being portrayed as the femme fatale or this, this kind of character, and yet mm. it was constantly sort of inverted. And and it just, to me, breathed new life in, into these, these tropes and having – Yes, we can still have these archetypes, but it can also be used as a red herring, which is something that I really loved. Yes. And I really loved reading the series Mysteries as a kid, like Nancy Drew. I read all the Nancy Drew. I read all 63 of those books. I know Carolyn Keene isn't real, but I love her. And like the Bobsy Twins and Trixie Belden, where like young women were solving mysteries. And one of the things that I noticed was it was always young girl is noisy, nosy, falls into a jam, needs to get rescued. And I kind of prefer like what's happening with like Veronica Mars in that it's not necessarily like I'm just going to I'm just going to follow my feminine intuition and inquisitiveness stereotypes into danger and that's how I solved the mystery. You mentioned there about feminine inquisitiveness being the way that the female PIs drive it forward. What is it that the guys in in noir fiction tend to do? Do they have, because obviously you've got the feminine intuition, the female hunch and all this kind of thing. What is it that the guys do? Is there any difference between how men and women kind of follow up on their gut feelings? I think... One of the things that I think of, like, with, like, especially the pulp detective stories, is that the the PI who, like, goes through all of these things is desperately searching for proof that the world is still good. 
and he doesn't get it, but he's going to keep looking regardless. But it's not, I'm not, I don't want to say that it's particularly hopeful. It's simply that he's compelled to keep looking. I feel like that is something that is, well, that can resonate with today. I was actually having a conversation with my boyfriend earlier today about uh, politics and just how utterly depressing it all is, but that even though deep down I think you know democracy is failing, everything fails us, nothing can help, uh, at the same time I have to think, well, people can vote and we are still a democracy and we can change things and it will happen because if I don't think that, then... I'm just going to collapse in on myself. So Right? You're going to lie down on the sidewalk <laughs> and you're never going to get up again, like in that old Radiohead video. <laughs> exactly. So I feel like that kind of persona that you have in the, the classical noir PI is something that does still really resonate for audiences today. Whereas I kind of think that with the women detectives who become PIs, it's not necessarily that, you know, I was curious, so I decided to get myself into trouble. But because they believe that the truth will set everybody free, no matter how long, how hard it hurts people, that giving corruption air and sunlight and kicking over the rock and exposing the crawly grossness underneath is necessary in order to improve the world. And so she tries it. And it doesn't work. So she goes and kicks over another rock. Can I ask a question as someone who is not a noir fan, but someone who loves a good cosy mystery? <laughs> Probably why Megan and I never like the same things. You're talking about corruption and truth and, you know, kicking over a few stones. But one of the things that they often say about the joy of a cosy mystery is that order is restored and every justice is served. But in the noir stuff that I've seen, that's not always the case. Would you say that? The truth and justice aren't necessarily the same thing in noir. So, you know, obviously truth and justice in a cosy mystery is like, yep, we found the killer. They've been put behind bars. It's all fine. Yes, everybody can go and have tea and cake. But I get the feeling that's not kind of the same in noir, that justice has a much darker idea when it comes to that. It's not necessarily about the law. You're right. Like with cosy mysteries, you go in, you solve the problem, and we can all go back to whatever it is that we were doing before. We can have our peace. We can have our tranquility. And in like hard-boiled detective fiction and noir, it's more justice is standing in the shadow there, like in, in like a couple of ways. In one way in that like justice never gets to stand in the light and the world doesn't get to change. But sometimes you can, you can bring a little justice in those shadows. I just think it's probably it's probably just like a view that affects that because when you're looking at noir, you're taking a very cynical view about the world being corrupt and a sad, sad place, and that the detective is attempting to stand against that, but fails, but goes on to try and stand against it another day. I think probably calling them a knight errant would probably be a little bit too romantic because they're just you know, they're jerks. Hey, watch what you say about Philip Marlowe. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm fond of him, but I'm, I kind of want to poke him in the ribs sometime and be like, come on, the world isn't actually like this. I love your idea that at the end of it, 
a detective has stood against it and maybe fails, but goes on to try again another day. So if you were writing a series like this, or even a character who's been through all this, isn't there the the possibility that they're going to get just so ground down that they become ineffective? I mean, is there a, a key point where you come into a story with a PI like that, where there's still, you know, kind of upbeat, yeah, I'm going to go for it again and not, oh God, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny because when you said that, the idea of them being just so ground down, it immediately made me think of a, a totally different, like trope set, the Gothic, where the the heroine takes on the monstrous in order to solve her problem. And my brain immediately went there, especially because in my, in my story, the PI is a magician. And so maybe she gets to a point where the story is, do I embrace this darkness in order to fight it? Or do I keep failing again? And it's interesting. I think you've just given me an idea. <laughs> oh, I like it. And if you can throw in some cozy cake, that would be even better. <laughs> oh, tea I, and cake I think I can probably do that. I think I can probably do that. Excellent. Uh, tea and cake. Uh, yes. I already have an idea for that too. <laughs> <gasps> Fabulous. Can't wait. <laughs> Charlotte, you're a muse. <laughs> Only in a very certain special niche area. <laughs> when it comes to sort of the the traditional noir stuff, I when it comes to like justice and and truth, and for me, part of it is always that it's I'm oh god, I'm going to get my Star Wars reference in, okay? Uh, but you know when uh, Luke is like Obi Wan, why did you lie to me? Why didn't you say he was my father? And he's like, oh, you know. It was, I told you the truth from a certain point of view. Uh, so <laughs> I think part of it is that. And, and you know, you come to the end of these noirs and it's often, yes, they, they've maybe solved the crime, but they can't get sort of the ideal outcome and they have to make a choice. And it usually, or at least often, involves some kind of giving up on or going against some of their personal ideals, but for some sort of greater good or sometimes obviously because the traditional one would be the the male PI, you know, doing something for the woman that he's fallen in lust with. Uh, <laughs> but it, it is this often, it's kind of like an imperfect end. It's an imperfect justice because they have to, forfeit a small part of it you can't it, it's never all wrapped up neatly in a bow uh, so yeah i i totally see where you're going there and i kind of want to call it like a perpetual dissatisfaction yes <laughs> um and dissatisfaction is such a powerful driver i mean it drives artists all the time um i love the idea of you know when you get to the end even if it's a good outcome the it's flawed it isn't what would sink into their chest and heal them, I think is like if I want to be a little bit fuzzy about it. And so they have to go on and they have to find another mystery. They have to they have to solve another case. They have to bring more justice. And that's not going to work either. Much to our delight because we get another book. 
slightly, slightly off. Well, not really slightly off topic because I was just admiring your amazing title. And I was just, you were talking about the end. And I just thought, is that, how did you come up with that title? Because it, it seems like it ties in really well with what you were just saying. Do you know that thing you do where you're writing a story and you're in the middle of the draft and you hit a line and you go, that's it, that's the title? Oh. Yeah, I know that's how I found my last title and it's not how I'm finding my next title. <laughs> I, I found the title literally in the middle of the story. When I outlined the story, I had a scene that was right at the center and the line came in there. And then I used it, like I kept it there and then I use it at the very end again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just a great title. Yeah. I know. You know, sometimes long titles, you're like, oh, you know, they, they, they can work. And then they, you know, some just don't. Well, this one does. <laughs> so Yay, I'm thank you. a bit jealous of your title ability. <laughs> sometimes the magic just happens like that. Other times, most of the time, I like lay on the ground and roll around and make like alarming Wookiee noises because I can't come up with the title. I just can't. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> I thought that was some kind of ritual you're going to describe of how you came up with the title. Like, you know, I would roll no, down. Get just despair. <laughs> well, uh, maybe Charlotte, you've just inspired uh, what you'll try next time. Uh, what, what we'll all try next time. I'm, I dread to think of the world I'm inspiring with cosy mystery cake and film noir and rituals involving incense and rolling around making wookie noises. It's, it's an interesting future project. It's a good mix. I like it. <laughs> well, what I really want to do now is film noir with, um, you talk about Skywalker. And so it's got to be some wonderful reinvention of Star Wars. It's like film noir, surely. Oh, yeah, probably. Actually, this is a little bit off topic, but one of the, the things that made me fall in love with noir was actually, because I'm, I'm a figure skater and for fun, and... There was this bizarre little TV movie with all the American figure skaters of like the 90s <laughs> and they did it as a noir thing where it was like Christiana Gucci and like, yeah, I think it's probably on YouTube somewhere, but I, I recorded it on TV. I used to watch it all the time and they do this ridiculous- I need to know. Oh no, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah it's I, I I'm gonna have to look it up but yeah it was um it was amazing <laughs> wow I need to I need to know about that that is great I I just think that competitive figure skating is probably one of the best kind of social environments for writing a story that isn't tapped enough it just it just isn't because like what do I have really Yuri on ice which I love, don't get me wrong. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> okay, amazing. And and I love figure skating. I, I, I've I been absolutely wild about figure skating ever since I was a teenager. I, It took me a long time to actually get the confidence to get on skates, and I didn't have a chance of actually becoming any kind of a figure skater. I barely do the waltz jump, but I love watching it on TV. And I had, you know, I followed... The winter would come and I would be watching all of the international competitions on television. Anyway, that was, sorry, that was a very random um, 
Off topic. It's fine. It was kind of on topic. It was like a, <laughs> a, a, a mild tangent. Oh, just me and my figure skating and oh, love it. But yeah, it's amazing. Um, anyway, we briefly touched on, you know, the, the idea. Well, I did, I think. <laughs> I'm going to reference myself <laughs> because I don't have an ego problem or anything. <laughs> uh, so like romance is in noir. You often have the the hard-boiled PI falling for the femme fatale and, you know, it's never going to end well. But it's not really something that's central and it's not something, you know, it's just kind of incidental or, again, it's it's just used, you know, it's, it's this kind of coercion technique and the woman is just pretending to sort of have a thing for this person and, it, you know, it just falls back into those <sighs> tired uh, tropes. But... You've kind of given, uh, got a bit more with romance in your your book, and I was just wondering, like, how you find romance when it takes on a bit more um, it, within the story. You know how that plays with more traditional noir tropes. Well, one of the things that I did, of course, because I mean it's pretty obvious when you look at the cover that there's some romance going on here, <laughs> since Helen and Eden are Edith are kissing each other. Um, but when we start the story, like Helen has a girlfriend, Edith. Um, and the thing about Helen that is probably different from other kind of pulp detective heroes is that Helen will do just about anything for someone that she loves. And she loves two people in this story very, very much. Um, one of them is her brother and the other one is Edith and that love basically drives her actions um in a lot of the in a lot of cases um and that that love that she has for these two people also is a bit of a conflict um because some of the choices that she makes are not satisfying to both of those people not that they are dissatisfied with them but it is dissatisfying to the way that she loves them and like i don't i can't think of a pulp detective who has this kind of like and this is the love of my life kind of thing um it's something that I've noticed in say like adventure stories, uh, like action movies where the hero has a partner and they're in danger or whatever, but that kind of makes them like a trophy. <laughs> I think what I want to say here. So I don't think it's quite the same. Yeah. I mean, when I think of noir protagonists, they very rarely have any kind of community, any anyone around them supporting them. They don't have people they love. They're completely isolated. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, immediately very different. Again, with like the, the, the traditional protagonist, you know, they are completely down on life and one of the things is that they just can't see the good in anything but you've got someone who has things in their life that are good 
and they aren't completely alone. They haven't hit rock bottom. They still have, you know, they, they have that for them. So how do you keep enough of the noir or do you, did you not even bother with that because you're like my protagonist? Yes. We're in sort of a noir feeling world. We've got noir themes, but my protagonist is, is a completely new interpretation. Like how did you sort of play with that? I don't, well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that on purpose. Um, I think one of the things that was important was that Helen at the beginning of the story knows that she is going to die in three days. And she has known that she is going to die on this particular day for literally years. But along the way to this death day had fallen in love with Edith. So it's not necessarily like a soft and fluffy refuge in that Helen knows going into the story that this love that she has for Edith is going to end because she is going to die and she's going to leave Edith alone in this world. And so that kind of carries this sort of this tragedy for me that would be kind of hard to do in a noir story unless you like set up these very specific supernatural circumstances that the story actively has. I just want to say like if anyone who's listening to this uh, <laughs> like hasn't read this book then you're you're doing a perfect advert for it because I'm just like ah <laughs> it sounds really amazing. Um, I actually can't wait to pick it up now. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, sometimes I just don't have a good idea of how to talk to this book about this book so that people will say, no, you know what? I absolutely have to read this. I must read this. Well, if Lucy's reaction is anything to go by, I think you've nailed it tonight. <laughs> yeah, you have. Okay, it's not like, it, I don't know, I, I'm never swayed by elevator pitches. I'm more swayed by the, this this sort of discussion. So I'm I'm really intrigued. <laughs> Well, I like that because also, in a way, it is the character's rock bottom. It's just, it's not quite happened just yet, but it's coming and she can see it coming. And that's another way to kind of have that instead of like dark past, it's a quite a dark future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that that changes things because... A, really did set out to write like in that voice that style with that like the the mood and the motif of hard-boiled detective fiction but there was just no way that I was going to like have every single thing absolutely faithful to the way that they were writing pulps in 1956 or whatever, just that wasn't going to happen. Um, and I didn't really concern myself with it too much because I was like, look, if I can just write an overblown metaphor here every once in a while and solve a crime, then here I go. Let's, let's do this. Okay. You may not be able to answer this, but I'm just curious. Do you, do you have any like favorite lines that you've managed to put in there that just felt like super noir and you were a bit like chuffed with that. 
because honestly, like, I don't think there's anything better than some of the one-liners you get from Raymond Chandler, for instance. Like, they're just, they're so good. I mean, did you have fun trying to do that? Well, I mean, that was kind of the point, right? Like, I had a little, I had a little card on my monitor that said, what would Raymond Chandler do? Yes. (laughs) Because that, that was... That was what I wanted, right? I wanted that voice. And so I was just sort of like, okay, well, that's it. I have to lean right into it. Like, just embrace the cheese and go for it. Because it's just, it's all there. I just, I'm trying to think of like a particular line. Oh, goodness. Like, the very first line is very definitely like that whole kind of detective-y thing, where I say, Marlowe had offered me $50 to stand out here in the freezing Chicago cold and do an augury, and like a damn greedy fool, I said yes. There's no metaphor here, but it's very definitely that <laughs> it's great. grouchy it's really great. detective vibe. And I had like a, a good deal of fun doing this kind of thing. Like, here's a little line. I just opened a random page because I I tried to do this. I tried to have what old-timey science fiction writers call the eyeball kick on every, like, every time he turned a page. And one of them was, his words froze in little clouds in the air. I do love it. Now, that's that's a metaphor that my editor would definitely not delete. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I... I actually felt really good about this story when I gave it to my editor, um, Carl Engelaird, because he is an extremely careful, thoughtful, and observant line editor. And he wrote, whoa, and damn, in this so many times, I was punching the air. Oh, that's amazing. I do like that idea of having a note going, what would another author say to try and keep your mind within that trope? Because sometimes you can kind of wander off and think, you know, oh, actually I was, I was trying to write this and now it's deviated a bit and now I have to rewrite it a bit. But I think, I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to find someone I like and put a note on the side and go, what would, what would they do? I might have a little, what would CL do? (laughs) It's just like, if you're writing a story and it's a love letter to somebody, like, I mean, with the Midnight Bargain, I guess I could say like, what would Jane Austen do? And with the Kingston cycle, that one is hard because I basically took a lot of the, like the familiar elements of the whole World War One has just ended and nobody quite knows what to do now kind of feeling. And, you know, it's just that that intake of breath before everybody desperately starts running after money in the roaring 20s um, and the war being over and everyone just kind of feeling their limbs to make sure that they are still there. And I don't know who my what would author do be for that particular series, because a lot of it has a, a great deal of modern sensibility. Um, like for Soulstar, I would I would say uh, the question is like, if Fred Hampton wrote a novel, what would he do? Well, I think we have had a good little chat about noir, which is still one of my favorite genres. I'm just you know, despite its, its problematic elements, I'm always going to love it. It's just fun, and uh, but we I think we've proven that. There's a lot of scope for more interesting ways that we can still engage with these tropes in a modern and intersectional feminist way, which is fantastic. 
So, CL, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It's been really fun. And the book, uh, everyone should go and pick it up because, I mean, if we haven't sold noir and sort of more feminist take on noir now, I I really don't know uh, what will. So, seriously, go out and get a copy. But I think uh, before we sort of just go out, I do – I have to say uh, one of my favourite lines from uh, The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler, who we've mentioned a few times, just because it's great fun and who doesn't love a bit of hard-boiled dialogue there. So this is my version of Philip Noirlo. All right. Neither of the two people in the room paid any attention to the way I came in, although only one of them was dead. (laughs) oh yeah 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 (laughs) i think that's the perfect way to end (laughs) i think we should be ending like all our episodes like that (laughs) (laughs) ah raymond chandler amazing yes thank you again um for, for coming on it's been a real delight thank you oh thank you so much for having me i uh had a great time recording this Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.